Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Julia Dahm. I'm Jaroslava Buchta. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And this is your weekly update of all things agriculture and food in the EU. This week we'll talk about the end of a cheese legal battle, but also glyphosate, uh, wheat purchases and agri-statistics. So let's start with a cheesy topic, if I may say so. Uh, we're going to talk about feta, and there was actually a quite important ruling about feta this week from the ECJ, which uh, Yara knows more about. Yeah, I, I would say that it's like, um, it, it was not even about feta, but it's like a, a great precedent for further regulations in this sphere. But basically, the European Court of Justice confirmed on Thursday that the EU's protection for Greek feta cheese also applies outside the bloc's borders, which means that Denmark cannot uh, produce feta and sell it to the third countries anymore. Uh, as uh, this also um, is covered by the EU legislation. But what this, uh, what this was important also uh, about is that uh, basically a uh, loophole in uh, the EU legislation connected to the system of geographical indications um, is covered now because, uh, because according to, uh, like FETA has a PDO status, means that it, uh, it has, is registered with the protect the designation of origin, uh, which means that, uh, it, it has had this status since 2002, which means that, uh, the name FETA cannot be used for any other cheese that is not product in some specific areas of, uh, Greece. So yeah, indeed, that's uh, that's why then Danish were producing uh, feta in the no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, indeed, this is uh, as you were saying before. This is actually setting a precedent because um, um, you know there there was this loophole. It's also true that now there's a revision of the geographical indication, but it's not. Uh, I mean, it, it's been discussed at the level of uh, lawmakers so with the ministers and MEPs but yeah there was this um, this uh, loophole because the regulation setting up the geographic indication wasn't entirely clear on uh, uh, if these rules uh, apply to exports no and th that was basically the the thing that the Danish uh, were doing so basically they were taking advantage of that and uh, and finally I mean this is this is a very long-standing cheese battle because they started in 2017 and uh, um, the commission actually was the the one uh, opening an infringement procedure uh, supported of course by Greece uh, uh, even Cyprus because uh, because of the fear of uh, you know ramification to for instance Alumi and um, and yes as uh, yeah you were saying finally they came up with uh, um, a ruling very um actually you know among all the rulings of dcj was quite uh, uh simple and uh, straight to the point <laughs> just basically that <laughs> geographical indication applies also to um third countries um but uh actually yeah the 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 denmark feta is not even yeah it's same. not it's not even the same as greek feta because um, like regional feta um, is produced from sheep milk or goat milk, while Denmark feta is produced from cow milk. Um, yeah, but it's... So they're not even good at the counterfeiting. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking with our um, Danish uh, listeners. 
uh, remember that uh, no, we actually love Denmark. It's a great country. And uh, we also have a colleague from Denmark. So, uh, no, apart from this, apart from these jokes, um, there, there, uh, this was basically the main uh, event this week, we can say. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of other stuff. For another long-standing battle um, after this one was resolved, um, one that's still ongoing at the moment is the battle around Glyphosate, um, which is also quite an emotional topic, almost as emotional as cheese. Um, because basically, to get everyone back up to speed, the EU is currently reviewing whether it should prolong um, its its approval of glyphosate, um, the, this um, very widely used herbicide that's also quite um, contentious. And the main question here is... Um, Does glyphosate basically pose any risks that are too high to have it reapproved on, on the EU market? Because the current approval runs out at the end of this year. And there's quite the complicated process, as um, some of you may know, with uh, the European Chemicals Agency and the European Food Safety Agency um, basically running a risk assessment to assess whether glyphosate is safe for the EU market, um, which is supposed to be finalized um, mid next year. But maybe some of you remember that recently the Risk Assessment Committee of the Chemicals Agency um, gave a first assessment. So this was kind of a, one of the steps along this um, quite complicated process. And this Risk Assessment Committee ruled or decided, didn't rule, it gave an opinion that, um, that it, there's not enough evidence to say that glyphosate causes cancer, to put it, uh, to put it in an easy way. Um, and this has raised quite quite the contention. And this week, representatives from both agencies appeared in front of the um, Agriculture Committee in the European Parliament to kind of answer to MEPs' questions and criticisms about this. And there were quite a lot of questions and criticisms. And one of the main gists was basically that MEPs were saying... Um, or we're raising doubts about whether these agencies have um, included all of the relevant studies, all of the relevant evidence to conclude whether glyphosate actually does pose a cancer risk or not. And um, the representative of the European Chemicals Agency who actually chairs this risk committee who gave this um, recent opinion defended their way, of, um, their way of doing the risk assessment and defended the decision. And he explained that basically the main body of evidence since the previous assessment, which allowed glyphosate, it approved it, um, hasn't, hasn't really changed. So there weren't any big studies that could give any additional uh, proof that glyphosate might cause cancer. So basically this committee was saying, um, previously we said there's no proof that glyphosate causes cancer and there's nothing new that could prove it either. It's also interesting because we actually uh, back again in the glyphosate debate, as, as you were saying, but in general um, with the sustainable use of pesticide regulation and also this uh, recent uh, um, this recent uh, proposal from the Commission to um, to basically set uh, a maximum residues level on the basis of global environmental impact rather than consumer health for two nicotinoids. It's a recent decision from the commission. It's quite revolutionary. 
um, it's quite a revolutionary because of the impacts on trade, basically. Uh, and also at the WTO level, they're currently assessing this proposal. Um, so basically, we can say that, okay, glyphosate is an herbicide, but um, plant protection products uh, is becoming, again, um, a, a big topic in the EU bubble with the glyphosate renewal discussion with this uh, sustainable use of pesticide regulation. And uh, we can actually expect to be probably the most interesting topic uh, in autumn, also because we're quite close to, we're not there, but we're very close to the summer break. So this is the good news of the of today's podcast. We're almost there. But yeah, so uh, when you, when we come back, uh, uh, let's brace ourselves from uh, an, an autumn full of pesticides as a topic, of course. And um, last week wasn't a, a very busy week, uh, but there was another interesting outcome uh, from the European Parliament, because uh, you probably remember there was um, a proposal from the Commission on, uh, on uh, the review of, of the regulation on agricultural inputs and outputs, the famous SAIO uh, or SAIO regulation. Uh, which were basically on agriculture statistics. Uh, you remember that there was a trilogue started in a trilogue, an, an inter-institutional negotiation between the ministers and MEPs. Uh, it started in February. Uh, it was over in uh, June, and they finally reached an agreement in June. And the parliament this week, the agricultural committee, voted uh, basically backed the compromise, and uh, it's basically the first step toward the final approval of this very technical, but also quite interesting, um, quite interesting uh, um, dossier, which actually, again, <laughs> will affect the <laughs> pesticides. Um, indeed, there was a, um, there was a, a letter from 58 organizations, uh, including trade unions, environmental health, and uh, beekeepers organization, who basically joined forces to send this letter to warn against the holes in the text when it comes to the pesticide data collection. There's a, um, a story on your active on uh, this on our website by our colleague Natasha Foot. And uh, the other point that I want to it was a bit of, not not of a scoop, but uh, it was found out by Euractiv. Um, the Slovenian government has presented a plan to buy all the wheat produced in Slovenia uh, in in a bid to stabilize prices, basically. So uh, and also protect food supplies. Um, this was quite suspicious for us because it sounds sounds like a state aid which is illegal in the EU and um, we contacted the commission uh, and uh, the commission actually uh, informed us that indeed they haven't received any um, any notification from the Slovenian government which is bad I mean they, they couldn't they couldn't say that but it's my interpretation. It's bad. <laughs> this is the translation, uh, Commission Gerard or Gerard Commission. Yeah, it's bad because um, again, it sounds either like a state aid, uh, which should be notified. Doesn't mean that it's illegal, eh? because uh, there are also, for instance, there's a temporary state aid framework uh, because uh, in the aftermath of the 
um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine to, and there are several schemes approved. There was one approved uh, in on uh, the 14th of July uh, of um, Czechia. Uh, but the, uh, and there are also some measures in, the, for instance, the second pillar of the agricultural policies, the rural development, uh, some some temporary measures to, um, and also the CMO, the common market common market organization, the so-called safety net of the cap. But the point is that all these measures need to be notified, and uh, for most of them, the commission needs to give uh, its uh, go ahead. So, yeah, the, the, the kind of scoop is that basically the commission <laughs> didn't receive anything from uh, the Slovenian government and they are in contact with the Slovenian authorities to learn more about that. So stay tuned for what could, what could come next. So this week, we have a very special guest on the podcast who's going to talk to us about olive oil. And not just olive oil, but olive oil fraud, because actually fraud is quite an issue in the olive oil sector. Uh, sometimes the the tag on the bottle doesn't quite reflect what's actually inside the bottle. And um, there's some projects that have been working on how to tackle this. And one of them is hoping to tackle the problem of, of fraud in the olive oil sector through digital innovation. Yeah, and we're going to talk about it with Stelio Sarkondakis, who's the CEO at uh, Biocos, which develops in general DNA-based solutions for the traceability of raw materials in food industry. Uh, and also this company uh, has developed in particular this olive oil anti-fraud tool. Uh, why so? Because of the complex supply chain that uh, this uh, sector has, and also because of the liquid nature of the product, which has transformed it into some kind of very easy target to to perform fraud. So let's hear from him about this authentication system. It has several collateral effects. The consumer, solely in the exposure of the olive oil fraud, will has been shown that reduces the price of the, of the olive oil from 15 to 50 percent. This means that high-end olive oils or the honest producers of olive oil cannot gain the value that they deserve for, for their product. And this jeopardizes also sustainability, but also society, and particularly the producers of the olive oil. So it basically it influences both uh, producers and also us as consumers of this olive oil because we expect to to get something and then we don't get it. May majority of the cases we get uh, really uh, what it is the label and indeed we don't know the extent of this problem. But definitely the best strategy is to work on technologies to support the let's say to make the good producers better and give them the value that they deserve so the consumer will have an additional uh, an additional uh, protection layer to to get what he's paying for mm -hmm. and now you're representing a project that aims to do exactly this to safeguard the quality of the olive oil through digital innovations now could you tell us a bit about how this works in practice. 
uh, in practically the concept it is very simple uh, we have excellent technologies like blockchain on, or other sensors uh, that they can digitally trace uh, any product along the supply chain but these technologies uh, have a pitfall a limitation they follow the documentation provided by the different uh, uh, stakeholders of the supply chain what we try to to do and what we are doing is to incorporate the DNA data into this uh, system of traceability. The DNA traces the product per se, so it doesn't trace the bottle, but also the content. So we try to give an additional layer of protection of the integrity and the quality of uh, the olive oil. So how will it work? Is it like some additional equipment that will be used during production or or how will this check be happening? In the future, definitely will be an additional equipment for the on-site uh, validation. At present, we just uh, process the DNA data we analyze uh, and the, using machine learning and AI methodologies that way we exclude also the implication of uh, the human error during uh, processing of the DNA test result. And this goes directly into the blockchain. So the results and the classification of an olive oil in terms of quality, it is done automatically. So, and, and it is tasted and it is tested along all Pro all steps of the supply chain. And do you think this kind of technology will increase the production cost of olive oil? Is this going like, to cost producers a lot, basically, to uh, to incorporate this kind of technology into into the production? The DNA technology it is not a high cost technology. It's definitely much lower than a blockchain system or other systems currently used in traceability. And uh, we must keep also in mind that as more data are collected, uh, the, lo the lower the amount of tests to be performed because you have a lot of information, background information. And an important aspect, of course, is that through the collection of all the samples of the different producers that the company collaborates with, creates an important genomic resource that can help us in the future to determine and, uh, the correct strategies to safeguard the olive oil production. Uh, if we consider the climatic changes that are ongoing in our in Europe. Mm -hmm. And talking about like further developments, uh, do you think this kind of technology can be used for other areas of agri-food testing uh, to prevent fraud? Uh, of course, of course. Uh, DNA information and DNA knowledge and technologies are uh, nowadays uh, available, much more mature than they were, let's say, 10 years ago. Uh, there is a, a, lo a lot of uh, scientific work produced the last decade. So the technology is here, is... Uh, ready and it needs to be fine-tuned for the applications.
So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you will know that Gerardo is quite a big fan of geographical indications. And we talk, we talk about them quite a lot. We already talked talked about them today when it came to the FETA. Um, yeah, he's kind of uh, like extending his team of geographical indications fans. Imagine, guys, how hard it was for me letting Yara talking about FETA this, uh, in this episode. So... Uh, this is this is was, was uh, some sort of declaration of uh, you know love quite uh, almost. Uh, yeah, so, um, it was a feel, joke when I said earlier that that the podcast is going to be cheesy, but now it actually is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 so you're uh, you're uh, a lucky girl, uh, Yara. But um, sorry, sorry, you interrupted. <laughs> but well, it's. I mean, at the same time, it's quite quite the net interest, if I may say so, the geographical indications. So today, we, we thought we'd try to to bring this topic to a wider audience um, and get a wider audience excited by talking you know, uh, talking about a protected origin product that is kind of Game of Thrones themed. Um, because... I got it. I got it. It's like last time that we put LSD in the title, and you want to put Game of Thrones in the title. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> this is very smart of you. Uh... We say Game of Thrones, and then people click, and of then they course. get. Uh, of course. There's also the new the spin-off now. It was yeah. recently. Yeah. So now uh, this is our new spin-off of uh, our new spin-off, which is about. Uh, yeah. So we kind of had declaration of love, then we're having like Game of Thrones, then we have. Uh, to have a murder somewhere. Yeah, yeah. If you put <laughs> love, like... <laughs> love, Game of Thrones and murders, it's going to be thousands of thousands, more than the thousands that we already have as listening. <laughs> <laughs> but thousands and thousands, and thousands. No, actually really thousands. But yeah. Mm, yeah, so tell us more about this. Indeed. So our spin-off uh, that we're starting today is called Dragon Fruit. Um, and it's also our flavor of the week. Um, and the inspiration for this came from a trip that Agriculture Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski did this week, last week, which um, led him to several East Asian countries, including Vietnam. And speaking at an official dinner in Vietnam, Wojciechowski said that he hopes Europeans can discover more Vietnamese products. And indeed, one of these Vietnamese products is uh, dragon fruit, um, which is grown in many other places as well, but as well in Vietnam, where... The dragon fruit that comes from the Bin Tuan region. Uh, apologies if the pronunciation wasn't correct. Um, those are actually trademarked in the EU as a protected origin product since 2020. Yeah, and according to local stakeholders, this step has helped to uh, help the produce from Vietnam penetrate foreign markets. And lucky for us, at least if you like dragon fruit. Uh, as this means, uh, we get to enjoy it more and more in the EU. And Germany, France and the Netherlands are among the biggest importers of fresh dragon fruit worldwide. We have a sample of German here. Have you, do, you, do you eat dragon fruit regularly? No, I've ate it maybe once or twice. But once or twice is better than uh, none. I mean, it's, it's fine. How does it taste? Um, it's, it doesn't have a lot of taste, I'd say. It's quite, um, quite soft, um, and like fresh, but it's not super intense. Yeah. So it's like dragon fruit and you imagine something fiery and, and then like something fresh, soft, sweet. <laughs> On the inside, it's actually, uh, yeah, and it's pink, <laughs> quite tender. <laughs> yeah. It's not the thing that actually smells, no. No, no, um, it's, no. Uh, okay. yeah, it's durian. That okay, smells. okay, okay. 
Do you have any anecdote on durian, Mayara? Like the anecdote, like like the one on, on I, Sage I last week. <laughs> well, I don't know if it is connected to LSD somehow. So maybe I already tried to ask her while we were preparing you already the podcast. You already tried what? <laughs> I asked her if she has any anecdotes about dragon fruit, but she didn't have any. Okay. No, nothing. So yeah, and and if we want to be very correct, the fruit is actually called pitaya or pitaya, no, pitaya. Pitaya. But the name dragon fruit has been used since the 1960s uh, due its, you know, spiky exterior. It's actually look like a dragon fruit. Yeah. It's like a fireball. <laughs> no. Yeah, and then it's soft and sweet and like yeah, inside well, part, like what a powerful symbol for human nature. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, indeed. It is, this is the philosophical moment. Uh, and we, we can also put philosophy in the title just to lose the the listeners that uh, we gained. And of course, it's no wonder that this fruit this fruit is spiky because it's actually the fruit of a cactus. So uh, finally, something to try during your summer holidays, maybe it's dragon fruit because can be used to color and flavor cocktails such as the Dragotini of the Dragon's Blood Punch. Oh, wow. What a badass cocktail name. Dragotini, oh. Dragotini. And blood, blood. Finally, <laughs> finally, we came to blood in our it. Games of Thrones. <laughs> Yay. Game of Thrones, love, blood. And murderers. No, okay, murderers, no. Maybe. <laughs> it's like, like, you know, this TV series, like, uh, uh, Love, Death and Robots. That's all from us this week. This week, the Agri-Food Podcast is produced by Eurectives Agri-Food team, Drado Fortuna, Jaroslava Bukta, and Julia Dam with the technical support of Abby Kiori. This podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Amazon, Stitcher, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agriculture news from the EU. I'm Jaroslava Buchta. Thanks for listening and see you next week.